Lord, in these next few minutes, pray that you will be enjoyed. Pray for this Easter 2009 that we can just ask and answer the question, what are we even doing? What even is this? Pray that you'll guard our hearts from going through an Easter service and getting our church on and getting a check in a block, but that we can truly encounter your glory this morning. Pray that you'll move me out of the way and speak in spite of me and speak to the hearts of your people this morning. Pray that you'll be savored and enjoyed. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Turn to Psalm chapter 19. <clears throat> privilege to worship with you this morning. I, this week, especially yesterday and today, I've been thinking about last fall, Brad Cardwell and I and Kent Jones, uh, some of y'all may know Kent, had the privilege of going to Jerusalem. And there are some different thoughts on where the, where the, the burial site is. But of the places that we looked at, what seemed to be the most likely was something called the garden tomb that's outside the city walls. Uh, London Garden Tomb Society or somebody like that owns it and maintains it. And it's pretty remarkable the sort of things that they found at this little garden tomb. You'll see a picture of it later this morning. They found a, a cross etched into the rock next to the entrance, and they also found foot washing stations around the area, sort of a little area going into the tomb, which that would have been an early church practice to wash feet. And it was interesting visiting there. Um, I'm surprised we got into the country, first of all, three stupid-looking rednecks. They, they didn't know what to think of us, they, but they led us through customs. We managed to go into the country and go into Jerusalem, and one of the neatest experiences was to go to this garden tomb. And I think Brad and I, I you know, only so many people could fit in that tomb at one time. It was more like one or two, but I think Brad was in there, and um, I was standing outside, and I think I remember him saying, He ain't in here. <laughs> ain't nobody in here. And just enjoying how much. I did the same thing when I went in there. There's three rednecks enjoying an empty tomb together, man, and it was sweet. And the thing that we're celebrating this morning is an especially vacant tomb. The significance of what that means. And I pray that in these next few minutes we'll go to what may be an unlikely place to ask and answer the question, what are we even doing? This Easter morning, 2009, what are we even doing sitting here? What are we even doing reading this book? What does it even mean? Psalm 19. I'll share with you briefly where we're going to go. I'm going to give you kind of a map, scriptural map of where we're going. We're going to be based out of Psalm 19, but I'll go ahead and let you know. If you want to mark some pages in your Bibles, you can have them ready. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. It'll be easy to find. Isaiah chapter 40. And Deuteronomy chapter 4. So you can have those passages on hand. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety first, and then I want us to kind of climb into it. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Where I want to go first this morning is just to look at the first couple of verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above can notice what the noun and the verb and the recipient is. The, the heavens declare something. They declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours something out. It's pouring out a speech. And night to night reveals something. It reveals some knowledge. If you really take a look at these, what you realize is that glory, God's glory, God's handiwork, God's speech, and God's knowledge each come from things that we all have access to. Mundane, routine, daily things. Things that we so easily could call common, like the heavens above. How many nights can we step outside and see stars? The heavens above, they're doing something here, and it's, well, it's sometimes hard to enjoy right here next to Dallas or Greenville or L3 right down the street. We have light pollution is what it's called. Sometimes hard to take it in. Some of you have been in the woods before. Have you been outside of the city before at night where you look up and you just see this starlit sky? It's there every night. And it's available to anybody and everybody. And then there's the sky above. Step outside, it might be kind of gray right now, but it's out there. And it's the same sky that Africa gets. It's the same sky that's on the other side of the world that looks just like our sky. It's no different, and it's available to everybody, and it's just so doggone common. But it gives us a message. And then there's the day, day to day, days like Mondays. Common days like Thursdays, ordinary Sundays, not just Easter Sunday, but day to day to day. It's not a day pours out speech, but day to day, the common things that you and I engage every single day pour out a message. And then night to night, the same thing, every night, all night, speaks a message. Think about night. Isn't it interesting that night usually conceals? The blackest night conceal whatever, but when it comes to our God, nights reveal something. Even the ordinary night that you and I engage reveals knowledge. In verse 3, says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The African sky is the same sky that we have here. The African midnight sky is different from the night sky we have here, but it'll eventually be the same. 
See, that sky rotates around to the other side where they get the same message. And this message, the fact that it goes out day by day by day and night by night in every far corner and in every place in between where the sky above and the heavens above and the day and the night shows us that this message of the glory of God not only goes out spatially to the far corners, but it goes out temporally every single day. God's glory invades space and time in a bunch of common things like Monday, Thursday, tonight's sky. So we're going to look at some snapshots here in the next few minutes. First, the heavens declare the glory of God. Turn to Genesis 1. The heavens is not speaking of heaven as we often think of heaven, a place where we're going to go on to be with the Lord. When you see heaven is plural, that's usually referring, almost if not always, referring to the, the heavens, the heavenly, the space, the stars, the galaxies. Look at verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. He's speaking about the sun. He's about to speak about the moon. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And oh yeah, and he made the stars. That's all it gets is... And the stars, almost like, I don't want to forget that, he, yes, he made the sun and the moon, but oh, yes, and then he made the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God. I've been studying the stars this week. I've been studying each of these things where we're going, but I found something interesting. I found something that's called the Hubble Deep Field Project. Some of y'all know what the Hubble telescope is. It's a space-bound telescope. It works outside of our atmosphere, which is good because, like I said, there's light um, Uh, pollution inside of our atmosphere. The fact that it's able to start outside of our atmosphere in space means that it can see a lot further than a telescope could see here on Earth. What they did with the Hubble telescope is on this deep field project is they oriented it into outer space through what is probably what they called is like a peephole into outer space out of our galaxy. Looking right past the Big Dipper, it's the darkest part of our galaxy. They were able to look right out through that little peephole and look into deep space. That's why it's called the Deep Field Project. And what they did over 10 days, they took 342 exposures, and each exposure was about 40 minutes long, where they just opened up the aperture on this camera and this big telescope, and they just took pictures of the same little dot in space. The size of this dot, if you want to know how big this peephole was, hold up a grain of sand at night and hold it up to the night sky. Hold it up at the direction of the Big Dipper, and you'll be oriented in the direction that they were looking. A grain of sand-sized space, what they found in these 100 or however many exposures, 342 exposures over 10 days, what they found in this grain of space is they found 1,500 galaxies that they never even knew were there. 1,500 galaxies with billions of suns in them. Billions of stars that our eyes will never see without some sort of assistance. Man, when I'm taking that in, I'm thinking, man, he spoke that into existence. 
If the heavens declare the glory of God, man, I'm engaging that he spoke an unfathomable expanse into being. And we just got one little tiny sand-sized peephole look into outer space. Take that same sand and point it in every direction and imagine 15,000 more. Billions, billions of galaxies that surround us. I was thinking, man, that overkill? <laughs> Didn't you kind of overdo it on that, God? Didn't you just need to go about as far as our eyes could see? And then we thought, wait a second, it can't be overkill, not if it's doing what it's supposed to do. If all that expanse of space gives glory to God, if it declares something, then can it be too big? Is there such thing as wasted space given what it does? It can't be big enough. Billions, billions, billions of suns and galaxies all testifying to the glory of God. Turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a chapter where, God, where Isaiah is speaking or writing on the greatness of God. God is speaking through Isaiah here in verse 25. He says, To whom then will you compare me? Is there any man that you can compare me to? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. It says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. These billions and billions of galaxies. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. From this passage and from Genesis chapter 1, we know that he made them. And from here, we know that he named them. And not one of them is missing or out of place. Last summer, Christy and the kids and I went over to a friend's house. He and his wife have this big telescope that they set up in their backyard. And it's just so earthy, you know, to know what you're looking at. I'm always so impressed when somebody knows what they're looking at when it comes to space and astronomy. And he's orienting this thing at the Pleiades and at Orion. He's showing us planets. He's showing us other little glimpses into galaxies. And I'm always so impressed when someone can just name a few stars. And to take in the reality that this God, all we have is this tiny little thing where we've seen 1,500 galaxies with 100 billion stars in them, and to think that's in every direction, and he's named every one of them? He not only spoke them into existence, but he named them. We get just a little glimpse through the Hubble deep field, but we can imagine the rest, that he's called them all by name. When I think about a man, a human that knows just a few stars, I think, man, that dude is wise. That dude is attentive. That dude's in tune with creation. But when I think about my God naming all of them, I think, now that's wisdom. That's attentiveness. Our God is not aloof. 
but he knows them all by name. Job chapter 38. You don't need to turn there. I want to just read a little brief passage to you. Listen to this. There's a few chapters here in the book of Job. You probably know Job's story where Job just, this world just came, came unglued. Satan asked for permission to do it and God gave him permission and he really had his way with Job. And Job over the course of the book questions God and God answers him. He answers him beginning in chapter 38. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action, Job. Dress like a man. I will question you. And you answer me. And here's one of the questions that he asked Job. He says, Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Or loosen the cords of Orion? I found when I study Pleiades, it's interesting that these words were written thousands of years ago. And modern astronomy has found that the Pleiades, what we thought was just a collection of seven stars is actually a collection of 250 suns. It's a collection of 250 suns that are all moving in the same direction. They all have the same trajectory. It's the weirdest thing. Astronomers are looking and saying, how in the world did that happen? Somebody must have influenced that. Somebody gathered them up, corralled them up, and then sent them in one direction. Who, it says in the King James Version, can you bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades, Job? Can you gather together 250 sons and send them on the same trajectory, Job? Can you? He says, I can. I can. And I did. He asked him, can you loose the cords of Orion? What they found about Orion, there's three stars that come together to, to form what looks like a buckle or a belt. And while we look at those stars, they look like they're lined up. It would be like seeing three ships on the sea that look like they're lined up, but they're heading in different trajectories. And over time, that belt is unbuckling. And God is asking Job, Job, can you unbuckle the belt of Orion? I can, is what he says. I can and I have. And the reality is, is that the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare his might. They declare his attentiveness. They declare his wonder, the expanse of his glory. It says, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Go back to chapter 19 of Psalm. He illustrates this later in the psalm. Beginning in halfway through verse 4. He's been speaking about the heavens declaring the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them, in His words, in the heavens, in the sky, in the day, and in the night, He set a tent. For the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. I hope some of y'all have been to a wedding. Most of y'all have been to a wedding before, but you paid attention to the groom. 
I've had the privilege of leading a few grooms out and being one myself, leading them out of that side room where they come out prancing. You know what I'm talking about, with that big smile on their face like they're about to break something, break a, pull a muscle or something in their face. They're so happy because they're about to see their, their bride. And they come out prancing like the bridegroom leaving his chamber. That's what the son does every single day. I go out to Brad Cardwell's three days a week. And we work out early in the morning in his little barn he's got set up. We call it the barn of pain. It's our little gym. By the time we step out of the front door of that barn of pain, every morning that we do it, every morning that we're looking, we see a sunrise that blows us away. Like the groom leaving his chamber, <coughs> prancing. And then over the course of the day, like a strong man, it runs its course undeterred, unfettered. It marches across the sky like a big old muscle man that's too bright to even look at. And then it runs its course and it retires at the end of the day, sometimes quietly, but usually often on days that are really sweet and special, sometimes in a red blaze from horizon to horizon. Our God loves his own glory and he gives us two opportunities to see it every single day. If we'll but stop and say, look. If we'll but open our eyes and see it. These common things that surround us every day proclaim his handiwork. Then there's the day, today, 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 Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, pours forth speech not just a little bit of speech but it pours forth speech if we're but listening where the wind blows where rain falls where a bird sings or a dog barks just thinking about that thinking about the fact that a dog barks thinking about the fact that you have a hairy critter in your backyard that obeys you that you can call and it comes to you and it licks you and it likes you and you can throw things and it'll go pick them up and bring them back to you. Every day pours forth speech. That's just weird if we're but listening and thinking. What is this animal? How has God done this? He's given us a little picture of what life used to be like before the fall, before the flood. Every day pours forth speech. The wind blows, the bird sings, the dog barks, the squirrels play, and people chat and laugh and cry. And every day pours out this message if we're but listening. Last year, we sat as a family on this bluff on the shore of Lake Yellowstone. Those of you who have been to Yellowstone, you know this lake is huge. It's not something you're going to paddle across in a couple of hours. It's Huge. We sat on the shore, and as a family, we've been learning Psalm 19. And we sat there, and I had a little, little hiker-sized Bible. We pulled out, and we read Psalm 19 together, and we just considered what we were looking at and what we were listening to. And we realized that as we were sitting there talking, we were listening to waves crash on the seashore, not on the seashore, on the lake shore, one right after another. Whoosh, whoosh, 
one right after another. And I asked the kids, I said, why is that going on and on and on? What's the deal? Why is it so continual? Why is it so repetitive? And what we decided is that if the day pours forth speech about the glory of God, how could the waves stop? How could the heaven's expanse be any smaller? How could they stop? When would it ever be enough? The waves really, I think, are following suit of the creatures that surround the throne that never cease to say over and over and over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Do you hear every day pouring forth speech? Man, if we're but listening. Last week, we took the McGraw spring break. We went to Dinosaur Valley for a few days and went camping. Over by Glen Rose, this place is just the weirdest thing. <laughs> Those of you who've been there may know what I'm talking about. You're standing on a bank of a little river, and you're looking down on this river. And actually, let me just kind of move into the river first, and then we'll move back. You're in the river, and you see this thing that looks like a big footprint. And at first you think, oh, well, that's maybe just kind of a weird rock formation. But then you step back, and you look up, and you see one about eight feet away that looks just like it. And then another one about eight more feet. And then another one about eight more feet. And then you step up on the bank and you see these crisscrossing patterns of different sort of dinosaurs that are crossing this river however many thousands of years ago. We're blown away by that. And as I saw these big footprints in this little bitty river on an ordinary Monday and Tuesday, on an ordinary McGraw spring break, I thought about this Job Dressed for action like a man. Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you, Job? Behold, Job, behemoth, which I made as I made you, eats grass like an ox. Monday in Dinosaur Valley poured forth speech for us. How could he create such a massive beast? And then how could he control it? He could go fishing for Leviathan. A few days later, after a little dog trauma, our dog ate a sock and was about to die. We had to race to Louisiana. My dad's a veterinarian, so we raced to Louisiana, and my dad's tending to my dog, and we went out for a hike. We went out for a hike in the woods. Louisiana, swampy, wet environment. We went out for a walk in the woods. It's a little paved path that we were walking on, and we considered that we're walking under these all different kind of trees and all different kind of leaves, and we're talking about it as a family. We realized we were walking under cypress, pine, cedar, live oak, post oak, pin oak, willow, maple, tupelo, persimmon, sweet gum, and every egret and every alligator and every blue heron and every wood duck spoke a message to us of wonder and design and creativity. And all we have to do is step out in this thing that we all have access to. We step out into it and it teems with speakers with this very same message of the glory of God. Every day pours forth speech. <laughs> Later on in the week, it was an extensive process tending to this old dog. Later on in the week, we went to the zoo. It's a zoo that I grew up in. My dad's a zoo vet also and he cared for the animals at the zoo for 
30-something years. Walked around this zoo that's so familiar to me. I knew it when it was just four or five cages with a couple of really sad-looking little animals in it. And now it's turned into a pretty significant zoo with some amazing creatures in it. And we know this zoo. Our kids know this zoo. We've been there so much. And Dad will bring us there and we'll actually get a chance to touch the animals and really see some neat things. We walked around this zoo this day and we walked up on a critter that I've never seen before. And it was a weird bird. And it wasn't like a little finch or something from Amazon that, man, big deal, you know. Okay, a finch is a finch. It walked up on a bird that I'm looking at and going, I've never seen one of you. (laughs) This bird is called the double waddle cassowary. (laughs) The weirdest thing I've ever seen. I had dinosaur on the brain because we'd been in Dinosaur Valley and I looked at this bird. I said, man, you just look like a dinosaur that made it. (laughs) You're crazy. He's got this thing on his head, this, this thing that I'll tell you about that in a minute. I want to tell you about this bird. The only thing bigger is the ostrich, which is another weird thing. But this thing is 128 pounds. They get big. They're 128 pounds, and they can run 30 miles an hour, and they can jump as high as five feet, and they take their inner claw, and they can slice a man's throat with it. Hello. I was thankful for the cage. But the most unusual thing about this bird was this thing on his head is called a cask. This cask he actually used to bust through the underbrush in the rainforest where he lives, where he can just move out, duck his head down, and just plow himself a trail. It's like a helmet. It's crazy. He can also use it as a shovel if he wants to go digging for something. I thought, man, how many times have I come to the zoo and never considered the designer? I could sit here and marvel at the design, but it ought to point me to the designer because every day pours forth speech. The nights in central Louisiana are interesting. We live in Bybeth Swamp. I grew up there getting out on a three-wheeler and wore camouflage to school so I could hunt before and after school. Country before country was cool. I love the swamp. One of the things that's the most amazing about the swamp, we live right on the edge of Bybeth Swamp, and the land that surrounds my parents' home is covered with huge oaks, just these towering oaks. It's covered with huge cypress trees that are just covered with Spanish moss and these really beautiful, rich-looking weeping willows. And it's wet all the time. And as you might expect, there's lots of critters there. It's sort of like this big organic terrarium. And there's animals Everywhere, And as much as you see during the day, it pales to what you hear at night. Night to night pours forth speech. Christy and I have sat on that back porch and marveled at the night sound from my parents' back porch. Big bullfrogs about that big, croaking. Little bitty green tree frogs about this big, making weird sounds. Cicadas everywhere. Crickets, screech owls, whippoorwills, all kind of birds and crickets and critters everywhere. Christy and I have been sitting out, sitting out on the back porch before we realized that we were shouting at each other to speak over the den. But it's possible to sit out in a back porch like that and listen to that and not really listen not really hear it, just continue to shout at each other and go, wait a minute, never go, wait a minute, what are we listening to? 
What is this night after night revealing? Is it possible for us to go through a night like that or a day like that or a heavens above or a sky above and never engage what they're saying? Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And if we're listening for it and looking for it, we can get it. But the problem is we can pet our little hairy thing that loves us. Weird. We can pet that dog. We can watch squirrels play. We can relax with the repetition of waves crashing all day long, all night long. We can marvel at big footprints and imagine the beasts that made them. We can walk right by and under leaves of every color and shape, hanging on trees of every height and width. We can look at a starlit sky and marvel. We can go to the zoo and see exotic creatures with a cask that busts brush in the rainforest. We can do all those things and never think about the God who made those things. It never enter your mind. We can marvel at design without ever enjoying the designer. We can do all these things and never consider his creativity, his majesty, his glory, his attentiveness, his design. We can come and go and miss the message. Every single day. I think that's part of the problem. It's just so available. It's just so daily. It doesn't cost us anything. So it doesn't feel special. You don't have to go far to get it. A lot of what I talked about was in Louisiana or Yellowstone. But we can step out in our backyard and get a different version of the same thing. I think the problem is it is so daily, the heavens, the sky, the day and the night, it can become like just this white noise. Before we moved to Greenville, we lived in Fort Worth. We lived 100 feet from an active train track. 100 feet in a house that was built in 1933. If you know what's going on in 1933, you can imagine how the house was built. It wasn't exactly a brick house. 100 feet from the train track, an active train track. If you've ever been that close to a train, you know that the earth shakes. You know it's noisy too. The first couple of months we lived there, we were basket cases, walking around, couldn't sleep, you know, eyes bloodshot. But then we got used to it. We got used to it. We'd have visitors come over and they'd come out after the night and their eyes are all bloodshot. We're like, what's wrong? Well, that train, what train? Oh, yeah, that train. It was just so routine. It shook the earth. But it was just white noise for us. That's what can happen to the heavens. And we have to ask the question, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, what are we even doing? Are we listening? Are we looking? Are we engaging this daily message? Now, Psalm 19 isn't over. If it was over right there, our sanctuary would look different. If it ended right there, what we would do, in fact, we'd, the, the sanctuary would never even be set up like this. It would be set up totally different. These pews in the front rows right here would be oriented that way. The pews that are kind of in the center, we would orient that way. And it would be kind of a, a, a sanctuary in the, where, in the round or the square 
And it would be oriented in that direction. And what we would do is, I think that I'm such a sports fan, that Seattle's, Seattle Mariners, I think they have this stadium that retracts. Is that right? Okay, I know some of you who would know. They have this stadium where the, the ceiling retracts. We could have one of those on our building. And day by day, night by night, we could just come in here and gather. We could just open up that ceiling. Wouldn't even have to say a word. We could just take in the night sky or we could come during the day and just take note of whatever bird might fly over. Oh, isn't that something? And we could just enjoy the glory of God. We could do that, but that wouldn't be enough. And you know that wouldn't be enough. <laughs> That's why our sanctuary is not oriented in the round or the square. It's oriented in this direction because their psalm has the rest of the story. The psalm continues in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If you mark this page, look over in Deuteronomy chapter 4. If not, don't worry about it. Just listen. Man, if Psalm 19 ended, it would be so different from where we're going right now. If Psalm 19 ended, in fact, who would need a sanctuary? Just bail on the corporate people altogether and just go to the woods. Just go hang out because you don't need a teacher or a preacher. Because you got the sky above, right? But man, we need what's about to unfold right here. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is charging the people with what they've heard. They've gone through the wilderness experience. They're about to go into the the promised land. Moses is, is on Nebo writing these words. They're looking over into the promised land, and he's charging them with this in verse 6. He says, keep them. Keep what? Keep the statutes, the rules, and the commandments. Keep them, you chosen people, and you do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, He's talking about the neighbors, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, all these ites. They're going to hear these statutes and they're going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all, as all this law that I set before you today. What he's saying there is that this law is so sweet that even the neighbors will look at it and go, man, their God has game. Their God is awesome. Their God's knowable. See, our gods are aloof. And we got to sacrifice our children to them and weird stuff like that. But their God is different. Their God doesn't tell them anything, but our God doesn't tell us anything, but their God gives them the whole story. Oh, man, it's good. And it says that these words, this law, these precepts, this fear, what is given, these rules, these commandments, this testimony are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there's great reward. See, here's the reality, people of God. you got to hear this. The Jews were guilty of having this law, but never hearing what the law was saying. 
They loved the law more than they loved what the law was pointing them to. It would be like loving the day more than the message of the day. It would be like falling in love with a double waddle cassowary and never thinking about God's creativity. We can do this. Huh. It's just the Bible. It's just Monday. Oh, it's just another sermon. It's just the sky above. It's just a sunset. We can do this with this book. Like the heavens, like the sky, like the day and the night. We can and do hear it and miss it. And miss where it should take us and to whom it should take us to. We can live and dwell in the unimportant and the marginal issues of life. And this rich, soul-reviving, life-giving, wisdom-bringing, heart-rejoicing, eyes-enlightening, enduring, true, and righteous word becomes like a nearby train. Oh, yeah. That's the train, wasn't it? New people. I see new believers that are coming in and saying, man, my ground shook. That shook my ground today. And I'm seeing people potentially that have been around it for decades. What train? Man. Can I tell you how many conversations I have with people that tell me, man, my marriage is falling apart. My life has lost direction. I have no identity. I don't know how to function. And I'm thinking, what did you do with Sunday? What did you do with that word that was exposed Sunday? What are you going to do with today where we're talking about a tomb that's vacant? Does that impact Tuesday at all? The picture that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, does that invade your marriage at all? I cannot tell you how often I have conversations with people who look at me like, man, I know that. What else you got? I'm saying, bro, there is nothing else. That's it. But you're saying, oh, it's just Monday. It's just a train. It's not just a train. It should shake the earth. Words are so good that the neighbors ought to be saying, man, their God is awesome. Their God has game. John chapter 8, Jesus says, if you're truly my disciples, you will abide in this book. You'll live in it. You'll eat it. It won't be a train. It may be a train, but it's a train you're standing right next to every day. And it's a train that you're dragging your friends and your family to every day. Feel the earth shake. One of my favorite verses. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He's not going to let it just pass by and not engage it. We have got to ask the question, people of God, every time we engage this word, what are we even doing? This is equipping you for Thursday. If you disconnect this from Tuesday, you missed it. It'd be like going to high school and paying attention in all your algebra classes and your calculus classes and all, your, all those other geometry classes. 
And then you're sitting hunkered over your checkbook as an adult and once you graduate and saying, I can't balance my checkbook. I need to take it to a pro. Like, man, all those word problems were equipping you for something. Sunday is equipping you for worship. It's equipping you to invade your marriage, your home, your life, everything. Psalm 19 continues, and this is important how it continues because this is how it ends. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? First, it starts with a declaration. It's like a declaration of amazement. Now that we've looked at the glory of the heavens and the sky above and the day and the night that all are pouring forth this message. Now that we've looked at all that and now that we've considered the law, we just have to stand back and say, man, there are no errors. Who can discern his errors? There's no error to discern. Nobody can because it's impossible. So it's this statement. Then he says he has a request. It says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, my rock, my redeemer. The requests are three. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Reckon me righteous. The second request is so important because this is where I fear that we land so often. He says, keep me from presumptuous sins. The word presume means to assume. It means to just take it for granted. You realize what this psalmist is asking right here? He's saying, please guard me from taking Tuesday for granted. Please guard me from taking John 14 for granted. Please keep me engaged. His third request is let my heart and my mouth meditate and speak in response to what you've shown in creation and what you've said in your law. His request that ends this psalm is keep me engaged, Lord. Please, every cricket, every word, every star, every verse, every starlit sky, every sunset, every day, every night, tune my wandering heart to thee. That's what he's saying. We have to ask the question on Easter. It's Easter 2009. What are we even doing? We're supposed to be celebrating Christ and his death and his resurrection, but I fear we can do it presumptuously. Taking it for granted, clicking off another Easter. Some of you clicking off another Sunday. Just a train. I fear that we can do this presumptuously. I watched a movie last night with Christy. Some of you may have seen this movie before. It's called Seven Pounds. It's got Will Smith in it. The story begins with, I don't remember what his name was in the story. It doesn't matter, but he's laying in a tub. He's got his clothes on. He's obviously really upset about something. He's on the phone calling 911, calling for an ambulance. The story begins this way. You don't really know the rest of the story, but it begins with him calling 911, asking for an ambulance to come to the scene of a suicide. And they're asking who has died. And he said, I'm about to. So the rest of the story explains what's led up to that moment. It flashes back and it shows him posing as an IRS agent. 
who's talking with people about their taxes that they haven't paid. What he's really trying to do is he's really trying to get to know them. And what you find out over the course of the story is that what he's doing, he's assessing them to see if they merit his organs once he dies. He's got this thing where he's got plans of giving all his organs away. He's taking his own life to give eyes to a blind man that you meet in the story and to give a heart to a woman dying of heart failure, a woman that he falls in love with in the story. And if you really think about it, man, it just makes you smile. You think, man, that dude is sacrificial, wasn't that? It's selfless. He'll take his own life to give his organs to someone else. But turns out the reason he's doing all that is he's doing it all out of guilt. What it tells you toward the end of the story is what happened in the very beginning that he was a man that had everything. An MIT grad, he had this old sweet Corvette. He had a beautiful woman. I don't know if she was his wife-to-be or his wife. And they're driving down a road one night, and she's marveling at this rock. I guess it would be on this hand. She's marveling at this ring, so I guess they were engaged. And he looks over, and yeah, and he looks down at his PDA, and they're racing down the highway. And what he doesn't realize, he's wandered over into the other lane. He gets hit by a car, his wife dies, and a van load of a family, a big old family, dies in the wreck. You realize the reason that he's doing this whole thing is because he's doing it out of guilt. He's trying to make good on what he's done, and it's a neat story. A man giving his life so that others might live, that's a sweet story. I like the sound of that story, but whatever his motive Those who see now with a new set of eyeballs. Those whose heart pumps now with a new heart. They're thankful for that dude. Man, they're like, I don't care what his motives are. That dude's special to me. They might even have reunions where they get together and they enjoy each other's new life. Huh. I was thinking about that story Christy and I were talking about it last night and this morning and thinking about the parallel to our gospel. Instead of Will laying in a pool, laying in a tub full of ice trying to preserve his organs after he dies, we're going to consider that we're talking about God the Son who also planned his death that others might live. But unlike Will, Will Smith, he wasn't acting out of guilt. He was acting out of our guilt, not his own. We were driving the car. We wrecked the car. And out of our guilt, he's acting. And he's acting out of his love. And unlike old Will who's looking for the worthy, our God went looking and didn't find anyone worthy. For there's no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's the thing that gives me chill bumps when I think about our gospel. It's scandalous. He wasn't looking for the worthy because there were none. And then, as awesome as that story is, the seven-pound story, that dude, if it were a true story, he would be buried, not even whole, minus all the organs that he gave away. And he would be dead. And the reunions would be celebrating a dead dude that gave them life. But our reunions are different. For unlike him, our Lord is risen. He's whole and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So more than living just gratefully, we now live lives of worship. And our gatherings are more than reunions. We gather talking about the new eyes that he's given us. And the new heart that he's given us. And we gather enjoying the fact that he's alive. 
That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Lord, I pray. Let me, let me stop. Let me give you an example. We can go through the motions. I know. I, some of y'all are closing your Bibles. That's normal. But some of you are gathering your stuff up. We're about to engage the God that did all this. Let's nobody move. Let's just say, what are we even doing? Let's talk to God together. God, what an amazing story. What an amazing work you've done in creation that you spoke in galaxies that we have never even seen hang and shine and orbit. Lord, we are thankful that every single day pours out a message of your glory. Every single sunrise, every single sunset declares your glory. Every single movement of the sun across the sky from sunrise to sunset, like a strong man, proclaims your work. Lord, we are thankful that every single day, not just some special days, but every single day, Mondays, Thursdays, next week, Every single day has a message, and every night. Lord, we are so thankful that you speak to us, and that you are revealing yourself and explaining yourself. And ultimately, we are thankful that you have explained yourself in your Son, and that you have revealed what this whole thing was about. When you sent him, and he came and lived a sinless life, and he took a cross and a punishment that we deserve and that he took our place, Lord, I pray that that arrests us. I pray that we can feel our need for a new heart and new eyes and a new life and that we can look to Jesus as the only one that gives that. And that this morning on Easter of 2009, when we consider how vacant that tomb is, that we can consider that our life is only because he rose on Sunday morning. Lord, I pray that we can just ask the question, what are we even doing? And that in this moment, on this morning, that we can worship. Guard us from presumption. Keep us from going through the motions and treating these incredible messages, these incredible testimonies that pour out like a train nearby that we've just grown accustomed to. May the earth shake Lord, we are so thankful that our Lord is so seated next to you right now. We worship you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.